Dave's Psych Lectures, part of the Thunderbird 6 Podcasting Network. All right, um, so this is what we left off, actually. Uh, and I think I mentioned this is these seven stages, and they need all, in fact, happen. Right? They need all happen. So you can get, in fact, a lot of times you want to get synthesis because you're getting something natural just out of food. Glutamate is a great example. Um, storage, you're always going to get some storage. You're going to get release, obviously. Receptor interaction, that's only if it interacts with the receptor. So that's only going to happen if you end up with it binding to a, a binding site. Um, it gets inactivated and taken into the next molecule, or sorry, the next neuron. Uh, reuptake, and then I was asked how reuptake happened, and I didn't know, so I found out. Uh, reuptake does not go through the old fusion port. So it was a great question, because I had no idea. Uh, it turns out this is it was, it's basically a transport protein, uh, binds on the neurotransmitter, and they're different for each neurotransmitter, and that then allows it to, uh, changes the shape of it, of course, and allows it to go through the semi-permeable membrane that is a cell. Uh, 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 um, and degradation, again, won't always happen, but we might get degradation through something like an enzyme like uh, monoamine oxidase which breaks down monoamine neurotransmitters, which we're about to talk about today. Okay? And this is all great places for drug interaction. We'll talk about reuptake. That's how SSRIs work, selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors. They inhibit reuptake. So more serotonin's around. Monoamine oxidase inhibitors, which are another kind of uh, drug, a thunderous uh, antidepressant, they stop the... Uh, they make less effective the activity of the enzyme monoamine oxidase, which breaks down monoamines. So if they can't, if, if it makes an enzyme not break down a neurotransmitter that's floating around, you're going to have more neurotransmitter. Okay? So this is, I think, what we left off last time. Is that correct? Okay. So... You have to meet five conditions before we can call something a neurotransmitter. This is actually something that isn't used so much anymore. It technically, you should, but it's gone to the point now when we take a look. You can, you can look at things uh, using um, advanced imaging, you know, things like electron microscopy and all that kind of stuff, where now we don't have to usually do all of these tests. But if something's going to be called a neurotransmitter, technically it's got to match these five conditions. First of all, it has to be present in the axon terminal. Well, that makes sense. That's where they come out. It has to be released on firing. So when the neuron fires, in other words, you get an action potential, that molecule must come out. If it comes out, uh, you might be a neurotransmitter. And sort of a jet, jet fox theme here. If you place the substance on an organ, let's, let's think about acetylcholine. <laughs> let's think about... Uh, Otto von Levy and his frogs. That's exactly what he did, right? He poured acetylcholine on a heart and it's slow. Um, if you take, it could be on an organ or it could also be on another neuron that has the right kind of receptors. Right? Then you have a Um, it's taken up, so uptake for inactivation. In other words, it's taken up into the next neuron and inactivated. If that happens, you've got a neurotransmitter. And finally, 
If you inactivate it, the neurotransmitter, this will stop stimulation. So in other words, if you make the neurotransmitter, uh, if you take, for example, if you use up the binding site, so if, if you bind a neurotransmitter to that binding site and then you try to put another one on there, it doesn't work. If you meet all of these five conditions, you've got a neurotransmitter. Like I said, people don't tend to worry as much about this as they used to. Because now we can look at molecular configurations, etc. It's a lot easier than it used to be. But technically, it's sort of agreed upon that you need these five things to happen. So sometimes when a new substance is determined to be a neurotransmitter, you will get, people call it in the literature, a putative neurotransmitter or a suspected neurotransmitter. This is unlike, say, for example, a neuromodulator. Now, a neuromodulator might, it'll do, it'll be present uh, terminal, released on firing. Uh, it won't do this. It won't emulate the firing. It'll, however, make the firing of the next neuron or the firing of a, or, or make the stimulation of an organ more efficient. So a lot of times you have things that act as neuromodulators, like adenosine or... NMDA, those things act as what neuromodulators, not neurotransmitters. Okay? By the way, we, we tend to think of, and I'm really only going to talk about molecules here, uh, big molecules. But other substances, very simple things like um, nitric oxide can act as a neurotransmitter. Because it actually emulates all, it, it sort of meets all these things. It's like, okay, it works. So very simple molecules, gases, things like that. Okay, so sometimes you get things like that that will actually act as neurotransmitters. We don't tend to think of them. Uh, we're not going to worry about those so much. Okay? Okay, so here's the ones we're going to worry about. Uh, acetylcholine will be the first one supported in movement. And, of course, as you know, it's also... The originally the first one discovered by Levy and that's Vegelstoff. Then there's a whole series called monoamines or monoamines, depending on how you want to pronounce that, doesn't really matter. Monoamine is more of a British pronunciation. Monoamine is more American. I couldn't go back and forth because I'm Canadian. The catecholamines. These are all very similar. You can like add a carbon or something like that to each of these, uh, or take one away, and you can make the other one. So norepinephrine and epinephrine, which you can guess are exceedingly similar. This is also called noradrenaline or adrenaline when they're uh, hormones. And dopamine. These are all going to be excitatory, and there are, these, these two here are used a lot in your sympathetic nervous system, of, the sympathetic division of your autonomic nervous system uh, when the fight or flight response kicks in. Uh, dopamine is important in movement. It's important in, and I mean smooth movement, okay? This is why when you don't have enough dopamine and you're substantially negative, you end up with Parkinson's. Um, it's also important in that reward circuit I talked about. It runs on dopamine. Anything that gives you more dopamine will make you feel good. 
So these are all very similar neurotransmitters. In the uh, one indolamine is serotonin, which is 5-HT. Uh, this seems to be important in mood. I say seems because it, you know, things like selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors. What do they do? They seem to have some effect on depression, making more um, neurotransmitter available, more serotonin available, is, is effective to a point for depression, except that they, there's something very interesting about it. Gosh, back, back up on that. Actually, all the monoamines have something to do with that because we can also look at, as I said, monoamine oxidase inhibitors, which are drugs, that are also used for depression. They make more, all of the monoamines make more available in the nervous system. The other one is histamine. And it's interesting to think that histamine, which is a hormone that, you know, makes your nose stuffed up and it makes you swell up if you get a bee sting. Right? Most uh, bee venom, uh, most, most insect venom, is a, uh, it's two things. It's an acetylcholine antagonist and a histamine agonist. So it makes you swell up and it makes your muscles rigid. Interesting thing is, I've told you already that too much dopamine, remember, too little dopamine is what? It's Parkinson's. Too much is schizophrenia. The first attempt to use drugs to control schizophrenia was by a French physician named Navalny, and what he gave people was, was antihistamines. And it actually did help a little bit. I'm showing you how similar these are, because we know it's a dopamine problem. But it did seem to have some effect. Also, these were schizophrenics that had a very clear sinuses at that point. Anything? Okay. So these are all excitatory. In fact, most of the things we're talking about are excitatory, but they have different properties. Acetylcholine is for tensing up muscles, for example. Amino acids, uh, glutamate. This is the universally excitatory neurotransmitter. <coughs> when I say it's universal, it's because it's the most common neurotransmitter in your brain. And as I've mentioned before, you can't be allergic to glutamate, monosodium glutamate, MSG, because if you were, you'd be allergic to your brain. Someone asked me last year if you were allergic to your Maybe, what about it could be the sodium you're allergic to? And I said, well, there's sodium. You need sodium for you to run, too. And also the sodium chloride in your, in your tears, that would mean you were allergic to your tears. Which sounds like you know a title of a Spandau Ballet song from 1983. That was just for me and my friend Mike, who I'll tell about that joke. He'll find it very funny. A GABA, gamma butyric acid, no one calls it that, but it calls it GABA. A GABA is always inhibitory. GABA is one of these things that this, and uh, also same with glycine. And glycine is a, just a simple amino acid, of course, again. And proline, that's not proline, right? It's not the event on the sports, right? My lifetime history, I'm up $13.52 in proline. I decided at that point I'm never going to play again because I'm going to probably start getting cocky. Uh, these guys here, but especially this guy, this, this is the universal one. This is the most common inhibitory neurotransmitter in your brain. Uh, th these three guys, though, they all open up. Everything else is opening up sodium ion channels to make a, a neuron more likely to fire. They've got spatial temporal summation, they fire. GABA 
and to a lesser extent, glycine and proline, because that's common. <coughs> open up chlorine ion channels. If you open up a chlorine ion channel, it makes the next neuron a little more negative, a little less likely to fire. Now, this will all balance out at some point, and you'll go back to the negative 70 resting potential, but you can get up to, say, negative 120 with a GABA synapse to go to the next neuron. Um, GABA, when you think about it, this is important because when you think about drug interactions, uh, things like benzodiazepines, like diazepam, valium, it actually operates on GABA. And it can bind to a GABA receptor site and open a chlorine ion channel. This can, should probably tell you how dangerous something like Valium can be. Right? Because if you're suddenly taking your whole brain and making it less likely to fire, you can go to sleep and not wake up. There are safer sort of tranquilizers. Cell uh, or sedative hypnotics, as they call them. Uh, those are, those are, oh, sorry, I got that backwards. That was, barbiturates will open it directly. Benzodiazepines make it a little, make it work a little bit better. They act as neuromodulators. Barbiturates, like phenobarbital. And by the way, it's barbiturates. There's an R, it's not barbiturate. It drives me crazy. Barbiturate. Anyway, the barbiturates open up the GABA on its own. The benzodiazepines like Valium make actors in a modulator and make GABA work a little bit better. And these guys also, as I said, uh, open, open uh, chlorine ion channels, but they aren't quite as, they aren't the biggies. Uh, what the big peptide to worry about is substance P. Substance P is a, is the pain neurotransmitter. This was not, this was discovered only pretty recently. Everybody knew there had to be a neurotransmitter for pain. Nobody discovered it, but everyone knew there had to be one. So they gave it a name, because it didn't have all these other things, or the names of chemicals, right? Like gamma butyric acid. That clearly means something if you're into organic chemistry. Which if you are, there's something wrong with you. Nothing? This is like, like calling it Steve. So they didn't have a name for it, so they called it substance P, maybe Phil, or Pete. And the neat thing was, when it was eventually discovered and isolated, they said, ah, stupid name. Which means they should have kept the name Vega Stuff for Acetylcholine. I'm starting a campaign to rename the neurotransmitter acetylcholine. So substance P is released when you get um, tissue damage. Now, by the way, most pain medications, in fact, all of them, don't operate on substance P. Okay? Um, you think, oh, the ultimate pain medication is shut substance P down. No, they don't do that. What they do is they operate on endorphins and encephalates. These, again, only isolated in 83, I think. An endorphin is like morphine. It's so much like morphine that when you have, when you exercise, when you have sex, uh, so vigorous exercise or sex, and frankly, when you're doing it right, those go, those go together. <laughs> then, um, also, when you do get hurt, 
when you're under stress, endorphins are released. And they're, they're so similar, in fact, to morphine that people talk about a runner's high. There's actually a reason that exercise feels good. And the reason is, in fact, you're making your own heroin. You're not making it the industrial quantities you can get it from Tony Soprano in, but, or though, the Hell's Angels. This is what makes heroin dangerous. Eh? It's, not, it's not a horribly safe drug, but it's not the fact so much that you have to, that it's the heroin. It's the fact that who you buy it from, they're criminals. Not like weed, where like everyone in here knows a guy. Right? <laughs> <laughs> you just know a guy. Or you know of a guy that you could talk to. No one in here probably knows a guy. I can eat some smack. <laughs> <laughs> no, it is true. I mean, like, it's not like, it's different. Anyway, so endorphins make you feel good. Well, why would you want to feel good when you were in pain? Well, think about this evolution of great function, right? When, if you're under, if you're heavy exercise, you're more likely to get hurt. If you are hurt, it's good to feel okay to allow you to continue on. Remember what this is evolved for. This is for fighting saber-toothed tigers. This is not for, you know, and, 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 and each other. It's not for, you know, playing um, major junior high. And kephalins are painkillers. Okay? And enkephalin actually stops the pain messages from being sent, but they also act on opiate receptors. An opioid is any opiate. Sorry, an opioid is, is, is an opiate that is made in your brain. An opiate is all of them. Okay? But endorphins, some of those molecules are just, they're basically morphine. They're basically the same thing. In fact, you'll find that most of the drugs we take are very similar to neurotransmitters we have. Like I said, Barbiturates can open a GABA, uh, sorry, bind to a GABA neurotransmitter, or binding site. Uh, finally, some other peptides that we tend to think of as hormones, but they, they, they will act as neurotransmitters. Uh, insulin, prolactin, human growth hormone, vasopressin, uh, oxytocin. So if they're acting in the nervous system, we just call them neurotransmitters. And they actually act as if they meet those five conditions. I mean, there's been talk, for example, oxytocin, which is released, um, which is, is one of the uh, hormones that actually causes labor to start. Um, or is released on labor, rather. Um, This helps. There's a notion that one of the things that oxytocin seems to do is it helps in social interaction. So, because in fact, if you block oxytocin in rats, they don't groom each other. And that's something rats will do. Um, and it also looks like, and this is really early days, we don't know this is true yet. Like it hasn't been replicated a thousand times. It's not like everybody says this is the case. But it looks like autistic people might not have. Uh, enough oxytocin or enough oxytocin receptors. So it may be the case that one possible treatment for autism would be giving uh, oxytocin to people, which would help with the social part of it. 
it wouldn't help with all the other stuff. Right? All the linguistic problems, uh, obsessions, all the other things. Yep. Wouldn't the social aspect actually help increase language at a young age? Yeah, it probably would. On the other hand, though, when you take a look at how, uh, again, this is pretty early stuff, but if you take a look at how um, autistic people's language circuits are, are wired, a lot of them are wired very, uh, dry picture. Um, I literally just, I've read some of this stuff, and then in fact, did anybody see 60 Minutes on the weekend? First of all, there was a whole great thing about Steve Jobs, so I watched that. Um, but then they had a whole thing about autistic people and iPads. Uh, and then they talked to this guy who was doing research. Uh, where the hell is he? I can't remember what school. But I read some of his stuff. And he was showing brain scans and showing circuits between uh, Broca's area and Barrington's area. And you take a look at you or I. And the connection is just straight. We're, we're totally hooked up. It's like we understand language, and then we talk. When you take a look at, and one of the people that he was scanning was actually Temple Brandon, who's a, uh, got a PhD uh, in animal behavior. Uh, she's a professor. She's also got autism. She's a pretty amazing woman. Um, when you take a look at her, see how there's a connection in here. And then, now, with us, by the way, you also have other connections out to cortical areas, right? So she's got other connections. With her, it was all over the damn place. Like it wasn't just all clean and neat like ours is. There were just connections everywhere. It's amazing that anyone with autism, if that's the way everybody's brain is wired, can even talk or understand language. Right? Because they got the they got the parts through language. But they're not hooked up nice and clean like ours are. It's just all over the place. So would making people more social help them with language? Yeah, it probably would. But there's still some issue there with how the linguistic circuits are, are wired that, that is really uh, striking. This guy's just got, this is early days on this stuff too. This guy's just coming up with this stuff. So I have to wait and see if everybody else says it. But yeah, it sure it would help a bit though, I would imagine. Yeah. All right. Other questions? That's a good question. Okay. Okay, there are, I've been talking about receptor sites all along. The transmitter binds to a receptor at the next neuron. And it, a lot of you guys, especially guys that have a biology background, know about the lock and key idea of enzymes. It's the same sort of notion here. Each neurotransmitter has a specific type of receptor it binds to, like a lock and a key. So the receptor has a binding site, which is where the, that's where the lock is. The key is the neurotransmitter, and the ion channel, well, that's the door. Now, that ion channel is almost always, well, for anything, sorry, for anything that's going to be uh, excitatory, it's going to be sodium. For anything inhibitory, it's going to be something negative, which is usually going to be chlorine. Usually a neuron only has one major type of receptor. 
only have one, because then how would these, say, GABA or glycine, how would those work? Because they're always negative, right? So sometimes you'll have a neuron that'll have both excitatory and inhibitory neurotransmitters, sometimes two excitatory, or three or four. But usually, most of the receptors on a neuron are hooked up for one neurotransmitter, or like the one type of neurotransmitter. But again, as I said, how would a, a GABA synapse work? It would just make this next cell never fire. So it's, it's, it's got to be a bit of negative and a bit of positive. Okay? And because you've got a bit of positive and a negative again, as I said before, this is where you can make decisions. The nervous system can make a decision. So you, the neurotransmitter binds to the binding site, it makes a, a, tra a neurotransmitter protein complex, uh, and something really weird happens where it folds, the protein folds, and then it goes into the, the across the membrane, and then it goes back out and it folds again, and it does this seven times because seven is the magic number in neuroscience, and I don't know why. And then eventually that opens the ion channel. Now, what could happen here? That, and that's where you're going to make the uh, open the. That's where you're going to open the, the ion channel. If you get all the, the seven foldings and going back and forth, yeah, yeah. But what if, for example, you have something that fits the binding site, but it doesn't open the ion channel, so you don't get all the foldings. This is where you get a drug that's called an antagonist. I talked the other day about naloxone, which is something if you ever overdose on heroin, the first thing that you're given is naloxone. What it does is it binds to opiate receptors, but it doesn't open the ion channels. So it takes the plate, it gets in the way of all the of, of the heroin. Well, at that point it's not heroin. At that point it's it's morphine. Heroin is just it's uh, Heroin's just on thiacinol morphine. There's nothing special about it. Well, there's something special. Hey, hey. Well, we'll talk about it later in the course. Then take their own talk all the way around. We'll bring it back to Hell's Angels and the talk about it. No, we won't. Our guest speaker today is Snake. <laughs> you know, from The Simpsons. We'll have him. Uh, a buddy that is a psychologist at uh, Maximum Security Prison Full of Lifers in Montreal. And he said that one of the guys who's a biker changed his name to Snake Harley Davidson because he liked the guy in the Simpsons. <laughs> and he said, why'd you do that? He said, I'm never getting out of here. It's not like I'm going to be applying for jobs any time in my life. And they'll say, oh, what's your name? Snake Harley Davidson. So I thought it was cool, so I thought I'd do it. <laughs> well, what the hell? You can see, though, that so we could use an antagonist to get in the way. So the drug doesn't work. We can also, what about a drug that is shaped just like, enough like the neurotransmitter, that it binds and folds and goes in and opens the, yep, that's what, that's what morphine does. Typically we will actually have, and then that's also what our barbiturates do on GABA synapses. On the other hand, typically, a lot of times drugs have their own receptors and neurons. Okay? But very often they just have, they just mimic another neurotransmitter. 
They're enough like it that they fit. And they open, they open the door. And we'll talk about other drugs, of course, when we get to the part on drugs and hormones, which is my, actually my favorite part of the course. Because um, it, it helps to sell to people taking Neurofarm, which I like to teach. <laughs> but this is a great place right at the receptor site for drug interaction. Almost all the psychoactive drugs we take as people, as the humans, um, almost everything we find fun at some point works at the synaptic level, usually at a receptor, and usually in a whole bunch of parts of your brain, but almost always in the nucleus accumbens. There are receptors for all kinds of fun things there. There's receptors there for, oh, I don't know, opiates, but there, of course, there's also receptors there for cannabinoids. Everyone's favorite neurotransmitter, delta-9 tetrahydrocannabinol, it's THC. It's what's in weed. <laughs> We actually make our own endogenous cannabinoids. But we don't tend to be able to get them. So they do things like, uh, they have antibiotic qualities, they, they're, they're uh, painkillers in our brain. Uh, they do all kinds of interesting things in our brain. Uh, we don't tend to be able to, we don't make as much as we would get from a bong hit of some hydroponic stuff. See, that's all. <laughs> or so I'm told. <laughs> <laughs> Prop does drugs. <laughs> okay. Hey, look, I've got a, I've got a misspent youth. Forties as well, uh, and I'm forty-six. I mean, I'm still misspending it. <laughs> All right. So that's how that works. Really, it's, it's. You could take. You go to graduate school. You can take a whole course in receptors. So go to graduate school and do that. Let's try to put some of this together. Let's put the brain and the behavior together. What a crazy idea. Well, it's the name of the course, after all. So synapses, neurotransmitters, learning, and memory. You can, probably, you can take a course like that, too, in graduate school. Donald Hamm, who, who is a, you know invented cognitive neuroscience, Canadian, at the Montreal Neurological Institute, looking out over personal Wilson Stadium, full of the great cup champion Montreal Alouettes. And Hep talked about, he was the guy that said, you know, the nature-nurture thing that you, you just talking about those two things. It was like, what area of the, the area of the field is the width of the leg? You know that guy, smart guy. Well, he, listen to what he's saying here. When the axon of cell A is near enough to excite cell B and repeatedly or persistently takes part in firing it, some growth process or metabolic change takes place in one or both cells such that B's efficiency as one of the cells firing B is increased. I don't know if that's how he talked, but I'm guessing. <laughs> Most people don't have a Donald Hebb impression. Okay, let's break this down because, you know, because that may be a little bit out there. Okay. A excites B. That's the two cells, A and B. And it repeatedly fires B. In other words, it makes B fire. Something happens in either A or B or both to make A more efficient in firing B. <coughs> Dave, yes. I mean that B needs less input from A? It could, yeah. It could mean that. It could mean that A <coughs> sends up more neurotransmitter. It could mean both of those things. Yeah. Right? <coughs> Heb is talking theoretically. 
Hammond's not talking, like, note that he's saying it's some growth process or metabolic change or something. But something happens when you get repeated fire that makes the circuit work better. It's called a Hebbian or a Heb synapse. So keep that idea in mind, because this was the first notion of how learning, learning probably has to, well, I shouldn't say has to. It seems pretty likely that learning is taking place at a synaptic level. We've got to get either new synapses or more efficient synapses for learning, uh, at the neural level, for learning to happen. That just, that kind of follows, doesn't it? So keep that in mind as we talk about these different phenomena. Okay. So let's talk about the simplest form of learning. And a few of you guys in here took learning with me last year, so you know about this. It's called habituation. And in fact, you probably learned about this in intro site. This is the decrease in the strength of a response after repeated presentations of a discrete stimulus. So what that means, it's, well, it's kind of like getting used to something, but only sort of. Because I'm not, not I said discrete stimulus. <coughs> I'm not talking about a constant stimulus. Until I point out to you the sound of uh, the fan and those projectors, you probably didn't even notice it now pointed out it's driving you insane. But you got used to it. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about a discrete stimulus. Something that happens and stops. And it's not sensory adaptation, which is like when you look at something, or sorry, or uh, when you have a sense of sensory experience, like, for example, getting used to the sound of the, of the projectors, that's just sensory adaptation, right? Or, you know, the smell of everybody else's house smells and your house doesn't smell. Right? You go home and you're like, oh. Then you, then you go away from home for a while. Come to university, you go back to your visit parents at Thanksgiving, you walk and say, parents have stinks. Oh, it's funny here. Now it's always smoked like that. You were used to it. That's an adaptation. That's not what I'm talking about. Or it's not just getting tired. It's not just like, oh, I can't even notice it anymore because I'm so tired. It's not responding to a discrete stimulus on and off. Usually, so it's stimulus specific. And we're talking usually about an orienting response or a startle response here. This, this can be tested in all kinds of animals. So when I do that, Hopefully it startled a few of you. But then, when I keep doing it, eventually, if my hands didn't start to hurt, look, acoustics, it's like they made a... They never call sound engineers, eh? It's really a weird room, sound-wise. Anyway, eventually, you get used to it to a point where you don't even notice it anymore. You don't orient to it, you don't look at it. Right? The orienting response, or start. So we test this in rats with looking at either the startle, or we can test it in other animals, maybe a cat. So we can test it and they look at it, the orienting response. Right? It's, a, it's the simplest form of learning. This shows up in every animal with a nervous system. Okay? So if we're going to talk about learning in brains, let's start simple. This is the simplest type of learning. Do you understand what habituation is then? Thompson and Spencer in 1966, you can see that this, this stuff's done, <laughs> uh, came up with the rules for habituation. It's gradual over time. 
In other words, it doesn't happen all at once. You don't stop responding right away. It takes time, just like any kind of learning, or most kinds of learning. Um, if you withhold the stimulus and the response, the, sorry, if you withhold the stimulus, the response will reoccur. In other words, if I do this again, it'll startle you again. I have to keep doing it. It was that one before, wasn't it? Yeah. It was always this one? I'm getting pissed off at that. Something's got to be done. I don't know who to talk to, though. I got no juice. Who would? You get savings. This is something. So the next time, though, if I, again, pretend that we take a day off and I start doing this again, and you startle to it, you will now stop being startled. In other words, show learning a little more quickly this time. <coughs> Just like you do, by the way. In any kind of learning. I haven't played Battlefield, any of the Battlefield series in quite a while, but at 1 o'clock, I'm going to go get my pre order copy of Battlefield 3. Last night? I didn't go to last night. I, I got a job. <laughs> 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 so I was telling the guy's CD games. I don't They always call me. Your pre order game will be here at the midnight launch. It's like, yeah, I know. I have a job. I have to pay for these video games with money. <laughs> And I would say that thing, I'll say, oh yeah, you're that professor. Yeah, that's me. <laughs> when I go into any games in the station hall, they call me the professor. It's funny. <laughs> like it's a, like a Gilligan's Island character. <laughs> yes, I've built my Xbox out of two coconuts. Um, so, I, I won't have played Battlefield in quite a while, and I've been playing uh, Operation Flashpoint Dragon Rising, which is really hard. Um, but the controls are just suddenly different. No. It would be like I'm just relearning how to play Battlefield. It'll take me, it'll take me five minutes of playing, and I'll be back to using <coughs> controls. You never forget how to ride a bike. Same thing with habituation. It's interesting how all these rules apply all kinds of learning, not just habituation. Um, the more intense the stimulus, the better you learn. So the louder that bang is, the more quickly you learn to ignore it. Oh, to a point. I mean, if it's so loud that it blows your eardrums out, that's it. That's kind of cool, too, because that means the more salient the stimulus is. In other words, I don't know, it's, pretty, it's a lot easier to learn something when you're paying attention to only it and nothing else, right? So there you go. Again, similar to other types of learning. Uh, you can overlearn something. You can overlearn something. And this happens in other types of learning, too. Because you behaviorally can't show that you know any more than, than 100%. Right? Like, couple, two of you got 100% in the test. The only thing you can show me is 100%. You can't show me anymore, but you can still learn more. Right? Same sort of thing happens with practice of any sort, even in, like, hockey practice. I don't think that NHL-level hockey players have to learn how to skate. I'm thinking they can all skate. But they still need to go through skating drills. Right? And you think, why? I'm sure sometimes the players think, why? Well, they overlearn it. They can't show anymore because you can't skate anymore perfectly than perfect. Or as best as you can, but you can learn more without showing. The same thing happens with habituation, where I can keep, so if you draw little diagram here, and this is the intensity of the stimulus, uh, sorry, the response, this is time along this axis. You start out by having a start of response, then less and less and less of a start of response, and eventually 
you have no startle response, right? It's greater than zero. But the next day, so if, we, if, we, if you get right to zero, we can have one group who start the next day, they just get to here. And the other group will just continue on, even though they're not responding. And then we take a look the next day when we try the savings. The group that's had a whole bunch more, but they haven't shown any more response, they're going to learn to ignore it much more quickly. They're showing you a phenomenon actually where, sort of theoretically, they're actually going below zero. They're responding less than not responding. It's a phenomenon called habituation below zero. Which uh, sounds like the name of a like an 80 bar band. Again, shows up in other kinds of learning. And in stimulus generalization to a point, it's stimulus specific, okay, but it's also the point that if I had, if I did this, the, the, if we were doing this with a 440 hertz tone, and then I changed it to 430, you'll still get responding the same way. Also shows up in other types of learning. So at first you might think, something this simple that shows up in everything that's ever been tested and is just ignoring something, basically? How do, what does that have to do with, with something that's complicated as learning things on a diagram for a test? Well, it shows all the same, it has all the same qualities. And if it has the same qualities, we can maybe um, study habituation and understand other forms of learning. On that note, we'll pack it in for today, and we'll continue talking about this stuff on Thursday. Thanks, guys.
podcast is released under a Creative Commons copyright share like 2.5 Canada. Uh, feel free to redistribute the information as you see fit, but please don't make any money out of it. And if you do, you got to tell me because I'm reserving that right. Giving up all the other ones, including uh, mash it up any way you want, okay? Um, also, of course, give me attribution. If you want to get a hold of me, my email address is dave.broadbeck, B-R-O-D-B-E-C-K, at algomau.ca. My website is people.auc.ca slash broadbeck slash blog. Uh, most of the music, uh, all the music's Podsafe, and most of it comes from GarageBand.com or the Podsafe Music Network. See you next time.